Hey, and welcome to the Equippers Church Sermon of the Week. My name is John Sparrow. I'm the lead pastor here at Equippers Church, and I'm so thrilled that you've chosen to tune in. This week, we had a special guest speaker, and you got to know, as a church, we don't have random strangers stepping into our pulpit. We have friends whom we trust, and we believe carry a gift that adds value to us as a community. I believe the message you're about to hear will inspire you, encourage you, and equip you for life no matter who you are or what you find yourself doing. If you'd like to find out more about our church and ways that you could partner with us, please visit equipperscc.com. God bless. Hey, as the junior hires go, guys, can we stand in honor Travis Avila as he comes and he brings the word today? Come on. Well, good morning. Man, that's tough to follow, but amazing to follow. What a great spirit of worship this morning. You know, Eugene Peterson has this quote. He says, worship is the strategy by which we interrupt our preoccupation with ourselves and attend to the presence of God. So I think even now, as we're, we're hearing from the Word of God, let's just continue in that spirit of attending to the presence of God. Amen. So yeah, like John said, my name's Travis. Um, my wife and kids and I have been going to New Life for about four years, and we've been on staff. This is a perfectly curated photo, Graham-worthy, of my family. And it's, uh, you know, it's smoke and mirrors, because we are a hot mess sometimes, like all of us. Um, so, so we look, yeah, we look good. Um, thank you. So we've been going to New Life for about four years. We've been on staff for about two and a half, but My background's actually in business, so working for a church is a relatively new uh, venture, and it's very different. It's very different. Um, But even though I've only worked at a church for a couple of years, I grew up in a church. I grew up in a very small town, very small Baptist church, and I learned about the stories of these heroes of the faith on flannel board. So if there's anyone over 30 who remembers flannel board, raise your hand. Yeah. So you'd have 2D Jesus, felt Jesus, and then 2D Peter walking on water. And uh, it was a great way to learn about the biblical story until you, as an adult, read the Bible and you realize that these biblical heroes weren't actually heroes at all. In fact, uh, they were deeply flawed humans trying to keep a covenant with a God who was bent on rescuing them from themselves. And if that sounds familiar, it's because not much has changed over the years. We're still deeply flawed humans trying to keep in step with God. But we tend to do this thing where we tend to dilute the biblical story into two-dimensional Jesus. And we make Christianity about simply being good, nice people. And while there's a place for that, I think when we do that, we miss the power of the message. You see, these biblical heroes weren't necessarily heroes or good people, but God used them in extraordinary ways. And what I'm here to tell you this morning is that he can do the same with us. Amen? The issue, though, we run into is that many of us don't believe that we can be used by God because we have a hard time reconciling what the Bible says is true about us with our daily experience. I was at a dinner party uh, years back, and uh, my wife and I were the only Christians in the room. The rest were atheists or agnostics, and we were just gathered around the appetizers. The kids were running around like banshees, and so we were just cramming as much food in our mouths while we had the opportunity. 
And we're just going around the room, and we're just updating each other on our lives and what was going on, you know. And one set of friends was saying, oh, you know, we're using the proceeds from our local business to sponsor youth programs. And another was saying, oh, we're, we're uh, helping out at a homeless shelter. And another family was adopting a child. And I thought, oh, no, my non-Christian friends are better Christians than I am. <laughs> You know, because there's me, you know, I'm barely hanging on. My kids are making me rethink the goodness of God, and I'm 38 years old. I have no idea what I'm doing with my life, you know, and I'm the Christian. And so that really shook me. And so, you know, First Peter uh, 3.15 says to always be prepared to give the reason for the hope that you have. And there's a pastor, John Tyson, out in New York that says this. He says, far too often, Christians spend time working on the answer for a question people are simply not asking because our lives look identical to those around us. Ugh. You see, so when we make Christianity about simply being nice, good people, we reduce it to a religion of cultural morality, and we get discouraged when we don't stack up. But God has more for us, amen? And the thing is, many of us have just lost a purpose for which we were created. You see, it's not about being nice versus mean. It's about being alive versus dead. So, our mission is clear. So, we're going to jump around the Bible a lot. So, get your fingers ready or your devices on. Let's turn to Matthew 28, 18. We'll start there. Matthew 28, 18. I think it'll be on the screen as well. But he was quicker than I was. Okay, 28, 18. Jesus came and told his disciples, I have been given all authority in heaven and on earth. Therefore, go and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you, and be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Now let's look at what will be kind of the anchor passage, which is 1 Peter 2, 7 through 9. 1 Peter 2, 7 through 9. It says this, Yes, you who trust him, Jesus, you recognize the honor God has given him, but for those who reject him, the stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. And he is the stone that makes people stumble, the rock that makes them fall. But you are not like that, for you are a chosen people. You are royal priests. You are a holy nation, God's very own possession. And as a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. You are royal priests, a holy nation, and God's very own possession. But most days I don't feel like royalty or a holy nation. Most days I just feel tired. And so what gives, man? Why is this discrepancy between what the Bible says is true about me and my daily experience? In 1957, about 12 years after World War II ended, American GIs were coming home from the war, and they wanted to make new lives for themselves, and many of them wanted to make new lives for themselves outside of the cities they grew up in, along with their growing families. Problem was, there were no homes outside of large cities, and so America had a problem in terms of shortage of resources and manpower. We needed to build a lot of homes really quickly and on the cheap. 
there was a company out in New York called Levitin Sons. And Levitin Sons were builders, and they thought, I think we could figure out this problem. And so Levitin Sons builds the first ever American suburb called Levittown, which still exists today in New York. And it was a real solution to a real problem. A lot of homes went up on the cheap. People moved in outside of the cities. Everyone was happy, except that two-thirds of American women at that time were housewives. So they worked from the home. And they were disappointed that their home looked the same as their neighbor's home, which looked the same as their neighbor's home, which looked the same as their neighbor's home. A 750 ranch-style home with two trees in the front yard. So they wanted a way to distinguish their homes, to set it apart against the monotony of the American suburb. Enter Don Featherstone. Don Featherstone was a recent 21-year-old graduate of Worcester Art School. He's a sculptor. So Don gets a job at this company called Union Products, which is a plastics manufacturing company. And they've just developed this revolutionary 3D mold injection technology so they can make three-dimensional plastics. So Don gets hired, and they say, hey, Don, we want you to make us a duck. He's like, okay. So he sculpts a three-dimensional plastic duck. Fine. For his next venture, though, he's looking for some more inspiration. So Don opens up a National Geographic, and he sees the vibrancy of color in the tropics and the wildlife. And Don Featherstone sees the pink flamingo. And in 1957, Don Featherstone designs the plastic pink flamingo that we've seen in American yards for decades. And we laugh because of what it has become, but at the time, it was a real solution to a real problem. You could buy a pair of birds for like $2.43 in the Sears catalog, and as Don was quoted as saying, you know, you could take home a piece of tropical elegance under your arm and spruce up your humdrum house. So mission accomplished. It set apart. It did what it was meant to do. Fast forward decades now, we laugh because the pink flamingo is known as kitschy and cheesy and kind of a symbol of everything that's wrong with American culture. Problem is, the same thing has happened to Christians, born to be set apart, to be royal priests, a holy nation. And now we've become known for our worst qualities. we become plastic. You see, the pink flamingo didn't lose its value until it lost its purpose. And so why should we care about this? Why should we talk about being set apart, being a holy nation, royal priesthood? It's because our current cultural narrative is failing us. Look at any study, man. We are more connected than ever, and we're more isolated and lonely than ever. We have everything we could ever, ever want, and we're unfulfilled in our souls, did you know in the past 30 years, there has been a 50% increase in unhappiness? We're a nation crippled with anxiety and depression. Anxiety affects 18% of American adults and 25% of children between 13 to 18 years old. In 2016, there were twice as many suicides as there were homicides. It's the second leading cause of death for people ages 10 to 34. Our culture and our children are literally dying for a better way to live. Let's look at Romans chapter 12, verse 2. I'm going to start at verse 1. I don't think it's up there, but I'll, you'll catch up at verse 2. 
Romans 12, verse 1, and so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and a holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Verse 2, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. Let God transform you into a new person by changing the way that you think, and then you will learn to know what God's will for you is, which is good, and it's pleasing, and it's perfect. In 1943, Winston Churchill was giving a speech to the graduating class at Harvard, and he said that empires of the future will be empires of the mind. There's a battle for the minds and hearts of all of us today, and it's more subversive than all-out war and potentially more dangerous. But it's in these moments that we're living in now that the pump is primed for revival, that a group of people get together and are renewed, and revival is just renewal gone viral, as Mark Sayers says. And that, I think, is what God is primed and ready to do as we commit our lives and our hearts to Him. Amen? Because I believe that it's your risk-taking for the kingdom of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, and displayed in your communities, which is what the world is waiting to see. They are dying for it. Now, by risk, I don't mean, to be clear, doing something dangerous or irresponsible for the sake of some reward. By risk, what I mean is radical obedience to God in the face of opposition. And oftentimes, the opposition is between our ears, right? But we have to live into our biblical identity. And so how do we do that? What actually differentiates us amongst anyone else in the world, and what do we do about it? That question, why are my non-Christian friends better Christians than I am at that dinner party, haunted me because I couldn't answer it. And so I thought, man, I could write an entire book about this. And so I did. I wrote a book called Pink Flamingo, Regaining Our Purpose in a Plastic World. We'll have it out in the lobby after service. But I want to just give you guys a real quick synopsis on kind of what I've discovered as I've been on this journey, and I'm still learning along the way. But I think that there are three things necessary to regain the purpose for which we were created. The first is that we must be submitted to the Lordship of Christ. The second is that we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit. And the third is that we need to be engaged in our community. I wish it was sexier. It's not. I wish it were easier. It actually costs you everything if you want it. But that's, I just think, the reality. So we'll spend the rest of our time going through those three things. So let's talk about the Lordship of Jesus. Who's calling the shots in our life? And I think that accepting the lordship of Jesus can often mean accepting risk because sometimes he's asking for more than we're comfortable giving. And I think that's where so many of us get stuck. We know what he wants. We have this gut feeling, and it's just more than we're willing to give, and so we stall out. But I think obedience should be the meat and potatoes of the Christian diet. So even the disciples wrestled with this, though. Let's look at Luke. Let's look at Luke chapter 6, verse 44. Luke 6, 44. Okay. 
A tree is identified by its fruit. Figs are never gathered from thorn bushes, and grapes are not picked from bramble bushes. A good person produces good things from the treasury of a good heart, and an evil person produces evil things from the treasury of an evil heart. What you say flows from what is in your heart. So why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I will show you what it's like when someone comes to me, listens to my teaching, and then follows it. It's like a person building a house who digs deep and lays a foundation on solid rock, and when the floodwaters rise and break against that house, it stands firm because it is well built. But anyone who hears and doesn't obey is like a person who builds a house right on the ground without a foundation, and when the floodwaters sweep down against that house, it will collapse into a heap of ruins. Why do you keep calling me Lord, Lord, when you don't do what I say? I've got a 12-year-old and an 8-year-old, and sometimes I'll ask them to clean their room. And they'll respond with, I know, Dad. To which I'll respond, well, if you knew, you would have done it. Because the evidence of understanding is action. The evidence of understanding is action. Do you know in Hebrew, there's actually no two words for listening and obeying. It's the same word, Shema, because there is an implication that if you hear, you obey, Right? It's the same thing. So the Lordship of Jesus is directly connected to our hearing and obeying the voice of the Spirit. And I think it's so important for us to remember, though, that the point of obedience isn't so that we could be robotic. It's that God can meet the needs of others through our obedience and to see his kingdom come and revival spread here on earth. And that is exciting. But it begs the question, how do we hear the voice that we're supposed to obey? Okay, so it's quiz time at Equippers. Let's, let's see, it, see if you guys know your Bible. Where is the Holy Spirit first mentioned in the Bible? I hear Genesis. What chapter? One. Which verse? Two. The second verse of the Bible, the Holy Spirit. So let's read it. Okay, Genesis 1, 1 and 2. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Verse 2, the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Okay, I think that if we are going to have a biblical understanding of the Holy Spirit, we have to have a biblical understanding of chickens. And I know that's a hard left. Follow me on this. Okay. Yeah. So that verse, hover, uh, the word hovering in that verse can often be translated uh, as, as brooding in, you know, usually older translations. The Holy Spirit brooded over the surface of the water. My wife and I have had chickens for years, and it's like purely utilitarian. We give them food. They give us eggs. That's it. We don't name them. Well, yeah, we don't name them. But it's just like utilitarian, right? So chickens. Well, you can have a brooding hen, which is a chicken who has laid an egg and will not get off that egg for anything, okay? They are committed to the birthing of that egg. So when you try to get an egg from a broody hen, you will know immediately because they puff up their feathers, they make this awful screeching noise, they're horrible animals, and they will not move. And so I'd have to get a stick and like push 
the hen off of the egg, which took more effort than it should have because I'm weak. So, so what's the point? Okay. The point is that the Holy Spirit in the same way acts as an incubator over God's good world, committed to the birthing of everything the Father speaks. The Holy Spirit gives life and energizes and empowers that which the Father speaks, and He's still doing it today, amen? So that's how the Holy Spirit functions, but then how do you hear the voice of the Holy Spirit? Let's look at John 10. John 10, verse 22. It was now winter, and Jesus was in Jerusalem at the time of Hanukkah, the festival of dedication. He was in the temple walking through the section known as Solomon's Colonnade, and the people surrounded him and asked, How long are you going to keep us in suspense if you're the Messiah? Just tell us plainly. And Jesus replied, I've already told you, and you don't believe me. The proof is in the, is in the work I do in my Father's name, but you don't believe me because you are not my sheep. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them, and they follow me. My sheep listen. I know them. They follow me. You see, the relationship between sheep and a shepherd is one of recognizing and trusting the voice and that only comes from time and experience. I can pick my wife's voice out of a crowd of 100 people because I've been in a committed relationship with her for 16 years. Her voice is distinguishable amongst any other voice. And so there is just no silver bullet for this, you guys. I wish there was. It just takes time. It's about spending every single day in the presence of Jesus. And it's not about how long you listen, although I think quantity does have an impact on quality, but it's about listening for revelation and encounter with Jesus, not simply for knowledge, although that's great, but we need to listen and read for revelation and encounter because the Pharisees knew a lot about Jesus, and even the demons recognized the voice of Jesus, but it was those who had an encounter with Jesus who were transformed. And so we need to put ourselves in the story and ask the Spirit to transform you, Romans 12, 2, by changing the way that we think, because like Churchill said, empires of the future will be empires of the mind. You see, as we develop these patterns with Jesus, we're transformed. And it happens at a sacred pace over the long haul of our lives. I was reading this study on, uh, on neuroplasticity because I'm a nerd. And uh, neuroplasticity is, is, is basically this idea that the brain is plastic or... Um, or can change based on what we give our attention to. For example, brain scans of violinists show growth in regions of the cortex that control the left hand because violinists often have to play these strings very quickly, very precisely. And there's other studies that show that the hippocampus, which is responsible for spatial recognition, is enlarged in taxi drivers because that's what they need, right? So what we give our attention to can physically transform our minds, neuroplasticity. But in order to do that, we actually have to pick up the book. The thing that grieves me, and I've been guilty of it, is that we 
especially as Western Christians, we have based our whole lives on a book we don't read. Yeah. So my wife and I have gone to counseling over the course of our marriage because I just think it's healthy to talk to people who are seasoned and have done it longer than you. And one time we were talking with some counselors, and they were saying, you know, if you want to develop passion in your marriage, why don't you just try holding hands while you're walking down the street? And my wife and I are not touchy-feely, so we immediately dismissed that idea. But I thought, you know what, maybe there's some implication of that in my spiritual life. Because here's what I was doing, and I know many of us have been there. I, I don't, Lord, I don't want to read the Bible until I want to read the Bible. You know, I don't want to do it out of discipline. I just want a passion to come out of it, and then I'll read the Bible, because I don't want to dishonor you and... Really, what I was doing was just making excuses. Husbands, it's like when your wife says, I just want you to want to do the dishes. Man, no one wants to do the dishes. That's not a real thing. But what I did is I just committed to the discipline of spending time with the Lord. I've been waking up. I'm a night owl. I've been waking up every morning at 5 a.m. and spending a couple hours before anyone is awake to just spend time in silence and solitude, prayer, scriptures, planning my day. You guys, 5 a.m. is the devil. Like, this is hard. But I'm just saying that, man, starting with the discipline can develop a passion so that you don't even need to think about it as discipline anymore. You're just happy to be in the presence of God, and 5 a.m. feels a lot better. So I I developed a passion. And now I, I tend to think of the Bible as like Russian nesting dolls. You know those toys? Because you'll never get to the end of the revelation. Every time you open it up and see something else inside, it's just deeper and deeper and deeper. And there's just no end to it. Okay, but why? Why do we, need to, why do we care about this? Why do we talk about reading and listening and obeying? It's because God is still speaking. And what I want to tell you this morning is that he wants to use you. Because you are the only person who can do what you can do. So do not waste your time. It's your risk-taking empowered by the Holy Spirit displayed in your communities, which is what the world is waiting to see. So let's talk about this engagement in our community. You know that verse in the Bible that says, and in the end, it'll be just you and Jesus? If you're struggling, it's because it's not there. Uh, Which is because the goal all along has been for heaven and earth to overlap and for God's kingdom to come here on earth. Let's look at Matthew 5. Matthew 5. Verse 14. This is one I think we're all familiar with. Matthew 5:14, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and then puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. And in the same way, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly Father. See, I think the problem with that verse is that we read city on a hill, but we think is church on a hill. But it doesn't say church on a hill. It says city on a hill. And I believe that the mark of a healthy church is a healthy city. And then you might be thinking, but I'm not not a pastor. I'm not a worship leader. I don't actually care. Like, you're not just anything. 
when you're doing it for the kingdom of God. Because I think that any vocation can be sacred if it's co-opted by the kingdom of God. So I got to tell you a story about my friend Greg. So Greg grows up in Wisconsin, and it is cold in Wisconsin. So Greg joins the Navy because they promised to take him to warm places. So after spending eight years in the Navy, Greg ends up in the Bay Area working in human resources. Greg hates human resources. He'd done one of those strength-based assessments that gives you a list based on your strengths what career you should uh, pursue. And out of a possible 11, human resources was ranked 10th. So he was in the wrong field, and he knew it, but he didn't know what to do. So Greg decides, well, I'm just going to bum around the country for five months. I'm going to visit friends and family and just try to figure out what the purpose of my life is and what I should be doing. So he bums around the country for five months until he realizes that he has an all-expense-paid trip to Costa Rica from the human resources job that he'd never cashed in. So he thinks, perfect, might as well go to Costa Rica. I have no idea what else I'm going to do with my life. He goes to Costa Rica spends a few weeks there, and then at the very last day, it's hot. All he wants is just an ice cream, but he can't find ice cream. So Greg has a light bulb moment, and he says, that's it. I'm going to be the Ben and Jerry's of Costa Rican ice cream. But there's two problems. One is that Greg doesn't know how to speak Spanish, and Greg doesn't know how to make ice cream. So, so what Greg does is he moves back to the U.S. to learn Spanish and learn how to make ice cream. He moves back to Costa Rica and, like, completely fails. He can't even get a building to start making ice cream in. He's struggling with the language. And so Greg just says, I'm done. He remembers this small coastal town that he had heard about. And he thought, man, that would be an amazing place to live. And so he moves there. He's walking down the street, and he sees an ice cream shop called Bernardo's. And so he says, what the heck? I'm going to go in. So he asks for the owner of Bernardo's. And he says, hey, you know, just on the off chance, like, what, what would you be, are you interested in selling this place at all? And the owner says, well, it's funny you ask. I'm actually meeting with my lawyers in a couple hours to discuss options because we're getting evicted. So Greg thinks this is my opportunity. So Greg finds out that the original owner, Mr. Burns, had actually had the company doing well for years prior. And so Greg goes to Mr. Burns and says, hey, I know you have this place doing well. Would you kind of come out of retirement and help me make sure that this business succeeds? And so Mr. Burns and Greg Steinberger combine their talents and their names to form Doc Bernstein's. And so years later, Docs is a thriving business in our community. They give 10% of their annual proceeds back to the community. And one day a year, they give 100% of net proceeds to scholarships for children because Greg realized that the purpose of Doc Bernstein's was to be a beacon of hope in the community. But Greg did not, like many of us, have a master plan dropped in his lap. In fact, I just talked with him a little while ago, and he said, I still don't know what I'm doing. (laughs) But what Greg got was Greg got two words at a time. He got Costa Rica, he got ice cream, he got Arroyo Grande, and Greg was obedient to the voice of God. And then God did what only God can do. And so any vocation can be sacred, even ice cream, if it's co-opted by the kingdom. You are never just anything when you're doing it for 
the kingdom of God. So I wonder how your acts of obedience might transform our own community if you would just take a risk. Because God built something greater than Greg could have ever imagined. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to look back on my life and see a story that didn't need God because it was too small. So I'm not telling you all to quit your jobs and start ice cream shops, although I will bless you if you do. (laughs) Opportunity could be and usually is, right? Exactly where you are. Just looking at your current situation with kingdom lenses on and asking God to reveal and help encounter and just be a blessing where you are. God only made one of you, so you are the only one who can do what you can do. He's put you on this earth for a reason, and we cannot waste our time. This is a critical moment for the church in this current culture that is running itself frantic at a rapid pace. A culture that is just crippled with anxiety and depression. And we have an opportunity to be a non-anxious presence in a world gone mad. So you got to remember that God is good and God is for you. And so what risk is God asking you to take? Remember that God didn't sacrifice his own son so that we could be plastic. He wants us to be fully alive and to regain the purpose for which we were created. So where are you on your journey? Have you submitted to the Lordship of Jesus? Is he calling the shots? Are you listening for the voice of the Spirit? And maybe God's calling you to take a risk, to be obedient in the face of opposition in whatever context he has you in. God's plan all along has been to partner with us for better or for worse, to see his kingdom come to earth. William Willimon is an American theologian. He says this, The most eloquent testimony to the reality of the resurrection is not an empty tomb or a well-orchestrated pageant on Easter Sunday, but rather a group of people whose life is so radically different, so completely changed from the way the world builds a community that there can be no explanation other than that something decisive has happened in history. So it's time to regain the purpose for which we were created and continue to transform ourselves and our communities for the glory of God and to see his presence fill our hearts and our cities. Let me pray for us. Jesus, I thank you that you are here and you're speaking to hearts in this moment. I pray, Lord, that we would be a people of radical obedience in the face of opposition at times. I pray for those who feel far from you that they would feel a closeness through your spirit. I pray for those who don't know what their purpose is that you would reveal in greater ways who you have created them to be and to do. And I pray that they wouldn't come with anxiety about having to drum up some kind of excellence or work 
But like your people said in 2 Chronicles, we don't know what to do about this army coming against us, but our eyes are on you. And so our eyes are on you this morning, Jesus. Would you come? Would you empower us by your spirit to be a people who is so radically different and so completely changed from the way the world builds communities that people would look on us and say, I don't know what it is, but I want it. That we would create five cities on a hill. So Jesus, we're here. Our hearts, our ears are open. We love you. Amen. Well, I pray that you are feeling encouraged, inspired, and equipped to take on whatever you may be facing in this life. And hey, why don't you consider joining us? We meet every Sunday at the Clark Center in Arroyo Grande at 10 a.m., and it's always a good time. We'd love to have you with us. And for any more information, ways you can partner with us, please visit equipperscc.com. God bless. Amen.